Welcome to episode 128 of the Daniel Yours podcast with today's guest, Dr. Carl Giordano. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Pleasure to be joined here today by Dr. Carl Giordano. Dr. Giordano, Giordano, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we were already getting into it uh, just before we we hit record, and I think it was one of those. Okay, if we're not careful, we can we can spend an hour talking about this before recording. Um, but I just because I'm very interested in this conversation, the 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 whole landscape of let's say longevity, which is a big you know catch all catch all phrase that can mean a lot of things, is kind of hot in the in the health circles and and that of the internet, but maybe not so hot for for most people. So I think this is a conversation that's that's definitely necessary and going to be interesting to a lot of people. Before we get into it, though, can you quickly introduce yourself, let people know who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. Uh, I am a uh, practicing physician. I, my specialty is orthopedic spine surgery, which is a little outside of the longevity uh, health span field. But, you know, even though I practice uh, as an orthopedic spine surgeon, I've followed the field of health span and lifespan for 20 years. It's something I've been very interested in. My background is chemistry in college. Uh, I've worked at the NIH. I've worked at Rockefeller University in some really sophisticated uh, labs. So my my understanding and my love for this field of health span and lifespan explained on a cellular level uh, is very strong. It's something that I've I've been following for years, and you know I've, I've just started now getting into the field of trying to promote this information to the general public through these types of podcasts. As, as well as through a, another company that I started that has a lot of information called Webasana.com, which you may know about. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I think to help people understand and maybe frame the, the remainder of this conversation, can, can you define longevity or maybe health span or whatever the, the correct term is that you think is worth defining, but can you just define that for people who sure. understand for the rest of it? Sure, I think that's important. Look, we think of lifespan as how long you live. We think of health span as how healthy you are during your life. And health span is obviously the more important of the two, but they go hand in hand. If things are done correctly, you'll have both a healthy life as well as a long life. Um, you don't really tease apart the two. Um, and I recognize they have different, you know, uh, you know, names. But I want people to think of it collectively as one field. Um, but I don't know of a word that describes both health span and lifespan, so we tend to use those individual words. But uh, that's where the, the whole field is today, understanding what leads to a healthy life and a long life. Would you say that it's somewhat accurate to make the claim that as a human species over the last maybe 100 years, we've done a really good job at expanding lifespan. People are living longer than, than they have, but maybe we've dropped the ball a little bit on expanding health span. Well, I, I don't think there's any question with what you just said. Uh, there's no question we're living longer, largely because you know of certain uh, procedures we have, certain diagnostic tools that we have. But in terms of the quality of life, uh, I think, you know, we've done the, all the wrong things. You know, we see a incredible explosion of chronic illnesses today in this country and around the world. We see Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline almost doubling, you know, every decade. We see, you know, if you watch the Super Bowl this year, you probably saw a commercial where one of the, uh, uh, cancer institutes indicated that one out of two Americans will get cancer today. Wow. I don't know about you, but I was ready to hit somebody. I was so annoyed to hear that fact. Like, since when do we accept that? So in terms of quality of life, um, you know, cardiovascular disease, the number one killer, colon cancer, you know, the second killer, uh, cancer, uh, the second killer in, in America today. You know, these things are just exponentially increasing. So, I think we're doing, you know, some of the things that we shouldn't be doing in, in terms of maintaining a, a high quality of life. Now, with 
everything involved in health, as we know, and as I've said, you know, a million times, and we'll say a million times more on the podcast, there is not a, uh, you know, a magic pill or a one size fits all um, approach to things. If you just do X, then therefore everything will be automatically, you know, 100 times yeah. better. Like that doesn't work. And, you know, maybe, you know, thousands of years from now we'll get there, but like we're not there yet. So what are the, the, the buckets or categories of things that we need to start paying attention to and taking yeah. care of in order to, to approach uh, in expanding health span. Okay. And I hope we can have the time to get into these three buckets and maybe we spend more time in one than the other, mm-hmm. but there are basically three, you know, exercise and we can break that down as to what it means and what it does on a cellular level diet. We can break that down as to what it does on a cellular level. And this category that most people aren't as familiar with called signal molecules And we can break that down and identify what those things do on a cellular level. But before we even get into any of these buckets, I want to just make sure the listeners understand that when we talk about aging, like what is it exactly we're talking about? And today we understand aging to be this fundamental process where genes in our cells are turned on and off incorrectly. And as we find that our genes are turned on and off incorrectly, our cells lose their identity. So imagine a brain cell that no longer looks and works like a brain cell. That's how you get cognitive decline. Imagine a skin cell that no longer works as a skin cell, but works as a dermal cell. That's how you get wrinkles. Imagine a muscle cell that now starts to work like a bone cell. That's how you get muscle atrophy. When the cell loses its identity through these genetic mechanisms that we'll talk about, you start to age. So everything uh, that I do, I ask myself the question, how is it maintaining my cellular identity? Whether we're talking about exercise, diet, or signal molecules, I think everything needs to be reduced to the, the science that we understand regarding how do we maintain our cellular identity. So when we talk about aging, we're talking about cells in our bodies losing their identity. And I don't want the listeners to think that this is some kind of biology lecture. But when we talk about cells, we're talking about cells making up tissues. Tissues make up organs. We're talking about your heart, your liver, your brain, your skin, which is the largest organ in your body. All of those things are aging as we talk about cells aging. Right. Um is this part of why, and, and this is a deep rabbit hole that we probably shouldn't go down, but is this part of why some of the stem cell research and, and, and promises of, of potential stem cell implications are, are so, have such a positive outlook is because they can maintain cellular identity or add new cells of the same identity to, to an area that is aging? Well, you may or may not know, but the people that won the Nobel Prize in this field in 2012 got the Nobel Prize by taking an adult cell and reversing it all the way back to a stem cell. So, you know, age reversal is certainly a real thing. You know, they they manipulate the cell at a level that you and I are not going to manipulate ourselves. But certainly the field of age reversal or um, controlling how fast we age is real. But, you know, the idea of stem cells, uh, it's not really in terms of relevant in the health and longevity field. It's more relevant in the terms of the area of repair. So you have a piece of your spinal cord that's damaged. How do we take stem cells, introduce them into the damaged spinal cord, and stimulate those cells to differentiate into a normal spinal cord cell? So that's where the field of stem cells is. You know, so we talk about them kind of collectively stem cells. But it's really more in the field of repair than in the field of age reversal. But I, but I get where you're going. If you can take a cartilage cell and inject a, a, a cartilage or a hip joint that's degenerated, and you inject stem cells and you can stimulate that stem cell into growing into a new cartilage or a new hip joint, then you, you, you know, you get into that area of promoting health span and lifespan. But right, we yeah. are, we are nowhere near that now. We have not been able to figure out a way to stimulate a stem cell to growing it to a specific tissue. And you'll see, you know, 
people injecting stem cells into the face to try and eliminate mm-hmm. wrinkles, uh, stimulate uh, you know re- regeneration of arthritis. But we we are just not there yet, and I think that's more the economics and the business side of medicine. But that's not real medicine today. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I don't think we need to spend too much time on that because I know that that's like, that could be a several hours discussion yeah. In, yeah. in and of itself. And, and I, and I appreciate, um, your, your brevity in, in that and also explaining it, but not getting too much in the weeds. <laughs> um, so, so that's, so, so that's, that's super helpful as going back to these buckets of, of things that are contribute to our longevity. Can you tell us a little bit about what signal molecules are? I think people understand what diet and exercise is, and we can talk about how the three are interrelated, but signal yeah. molecules is probably a new term for most people. What does that mean? And why do, why should we care about it? Yeah. So signal molecules basically are working at the level of the cell at the sub level of your genetics, your genes. So when we talk about genes, I want to refresh everybody's memory. Your gene is a section of DNA that codes for a specific protein. And those proteins uh, have cellular functions to help maintain your cell identity. So there are three particular sections of DNA or three particular genes that we refer to as longevity genes. These are the genes that get all the press today. They are your sirtuin gene that makes the sirtuin protein your AMPK gene that makes the AMPK protein, and your mTOR gene that makes your mTOR protein. So the signal molecules work on those three genes. They either promote, upregulate, or downregulate them. So the signal molecules will upregulate your sirtuins, they'll upregulate AMPK, and they'll downregulate mTOR which is what we want to do. And on a cellular level, whether we're doing a lab experiment or we're working on uh, small mammals, we can promote the, the lifespan and the health span of essentially every organism tested by nudging those genetic pathways in our favor. Now, sometimes people will criticize, well, we see that benefit in a mouse or a fly or a unicellular organism like a yeast cell but we don't see the benefit in humans. Well, that's not really true. We see the benefit in humans. It's just we can't state that we extend the lifespan in humans because we haven't lived long enough to document that humans that take these will live to be 10, 15, 20 years longer. We certainly expect it. We see that we can increase the lifespan of yeast cells 30%. We see that we can increase the lifespan of mouse 30%. Essentially, every organism tested, we can extend the lifespan. So we, we certainly expect to see the extension of human life in humans with these same signal molecules. So, so before I even get off this answer, there, those are the three longevity gene pathways. There's also the telomere pathway. You know, the telomeres are like the metal tips on your shoelaces. They prevent your shoelace from fraying. The telomeres prevent your DNA from fraying, the tips of your DNA. So these certain signal molecules will nudge the telomere pathway to maintain its length. And as your telomere uh, shortens, your cells start to age or die. Um, And then the, the fourth pathway through these signal molecules is through your metabolism, your metabolism of blood sugar. So that's the fourth pathway that these signal molecules can work on. And the, the next pathway is what I refer to as the antioxidant pathway. You know, antioxidants are very important. We hear about them. People may or may not really fully understand the value of them. But when you have free radicals in your cells, the free radicals damage your cell membrane. They make your cells very leaky. The, the membrane becomes more permeable and it allows for uh, the cells to lose their identity. The free radicals actually can damage the DNA itself so that the wrong proteins are made and your cell loses its identity. So they all contribute to aging. And when you have antioxidants circulating in your system all the time, you are combating the damage that the free radicals are constantly doing. So those are the, the main mechanisms. The three longevity gene pathways, the telomeres, your body metabolism, primarily glucose, and the antioxidants. And the signal molecules 
basically all work on a cellular level to help maintain your cellular identity, to help decelerate the aging process. Is any of those more important or more impactful than the other? So I think that's not the way the public should view this because okay. the, all of these pathways are important. And interestingly, when you address all of the pathways together, the, the, it becomes more synergistic, right. where the, the sum of the parts is more valuable than the individual parts themselves. Um, and I think that's the way the public needs to understand this. These are all complementary synergistic pathways. You can't really pick one and not the other. Likewise, you can't pick one bucket. You can't pick just diet. You can't pick just exercise. You can't pick just signal molecules. You want to pick all three buckets because that's what the information is telling us today. But uh, getting into the specific names of the molecules, I think the public should be aware of. And some of them they've probably heard, but we're talking about berberine, which basically, you know, works to maintain your blood sugar. We're talking about resveratrol, which works specifically, as does berberine, on all of these pathways. We're talking about ostragalus that works on the telomeres. We're talking about uh, NMN, nicotinamide mononucleotide, which raises your sirtuin level. You know, we're talking about quercetin. That's the fifth one. That is, uh, again, a powerful antioxidant, as are all of these, essentially, that works on removing senolytic cells or zombie-like cells as your cell loses its identity. Eventually, you want to remove those cells. So those are the five molecules that are, they get the most press today. You know, those five, I think everybody should be familiar with and very comfortable with because they are natural molecules found in plants. It's just you can't get enough of them through the plant source. You have to supplement to see the benefits that we're talking about. And that's, and that's why I say this is my, my favorite field uh, that I enjoy looking at. And that's why we, we recognize how hard it is to take the right doses and the right molecules all at once. And that's why we try to combine all of this into a single uh, product called Revisana. But again, you have to take a certain number of these per day in order to see the benefits that we want to find. Is this an issue of the reduced food quality based on like soil and, and farming practices and stuff like that? Or is it just simply like the, the specific vegetables that these are found in? I would have to eat a, a, an unreasonable amount to, to actually consume a, a usable amount to, to help with the aging process. Yeah. So when we talk about diet, we can talk about the nutrients found in the plants and the foods that we can eat. But the signal molecules, again, are in a separate category because you can't get enough of these molecules from the plant sources themselves, no matter how good the plant sources are. Uh, as an example, the resveratrol in the tablet of Repasana per day would be equivalent to 100 glasses of red wine per day. You know, resveratrol is that molecule found in red wine that's associated with a greater, you know, lifespan in the French population, especially since they have a high fat diet and a high percentage of smokers in their population. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, you cannot get enough of these through the plant uh, diet sources, not because of the, the, the soil not being as nutritious. It's just we are concentrating the amount um, to a level that we've seen used over the last thousand years by some of these molecules and over the last you know 50 years by other molecules in epidemiologic studies where we look at large populations of people as well as animal studies. Right. So all of this impacting our, our health span is uh, improving our health span is of course a good thing. It will also increase lifespan. But then my question is, is that a good thing? Of course, you know, we need to die eventually. And so trying to live forever would have some implications on like the planet at large if the population was infinitely increasing. Um, but, but also just like we're, we're messing with some stuff, some natural processes. So what's the, like, what is the limit to this and how much are we really going to impact that? And is it even, is it even a good thing to try and live, you know, 30, 40, 50 years longer? Yeah, so I think, you know, Sinclair from Harvard has stated that he thinks done well 
people could probably live to be about 150. Um, whether it's good for the planet or not, you know, that, that as a physician, I'm focused on health span and lifespan. Um, but think about how valuable you are to your own family. If you can stay healthier and live longer, if you can be around for your great grandkids, not just your grandkids, think about how valuable it is for you to be able to work longer and support those in your family that may need extra help. So I don't think there's any question our goal should be to live longer and to live healthier. There are a lot of benefits. I, I have a lot of confidence in our scientific community that they'll figure out ways uh, for us to maintain the planet and the resources that we need. But um, as a physician, uh, I'm not going to get into that philosophical answer, but I can tell you, you know, my motive is to give people the right information to live healthier and to live longer. And I think there will be a lot of benefit uh, and a lot of reward with that. Yeah, fair enough and makes makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I guess the, the next kind of thought that is that is circling in my head here is all of these uh, different different pathways and these signal molecules, you listed off some supplements, let's say, that, that you can take to improve them. Um, mm-hmm. Are we trying to upregulate these things or downregulate these things? Maybe it's a combination of both. Um, and is the only way to do that through the supplementation uh, of these certain um, substances? Yeah. So we definitely want to upregulate the sirtuins. As we age, our sirtuin levels drop. And anything you can do to raise your sirtuin levels will help maintain cellular identity. Um, we want to upregulate our AMPK pathways because that is the pathway that correlates your energy needs with the cell. And it also correlates with, you know, metabolism of your glucose. The problem with having a high blood glucose level is the glucose damages proteins, it damages cells, it accelerates aging. And you want to downregulate mTOR. So mTOR is the genetic pathway that leads to building proteins and, and muscle mass, so to speak. Um, but when you downregulate mTOR, you recycle the, the proteins that are in the cells that are misfolded and not used. And if you don't recycle those proteins, they create cellular clutter, cellular inefficiency, and you start to accelerate aging because your cells lose their identity. So ideally, you're going to upregulate sirtuins, upregulate AMPK, and downregulate mTOR. So people get caught up with this idea of, you know, downregulating mTOR. Well, I want to, that's not the way I build my muscle mass. <laughs> yeah. Now, and look, I get that. You read and me I, like a book. <laughs> uh, and, and that's not what we're talking about. You still need to have the right protein in your diet to maintain muscle mass to maintain the synthesis of proteins and enzymes that your body and hormones that your body needs. So, like, I, I typically refer to the, my favorite diet as a low-protein, high-complex-carbohydrate diet, kind of mirroring the Mediterranean diet or the paleo diet. Um, but I don't like the word low-protein. I think we should just say normal-protein <laughs> and high-complex-carbohydrate diet which is largely a plant-based diet. You can certainly get enough protein through plant-based diets today. The problem with the high-protein diet is you are upregulating mTOR, so you're never recycling the proteins in your cells, and you accelerate the aging process. Now, look, you probably have seen Arnold Schwarzenegger now is on a low-protein, high-complex carbohydrate diet. It's largely plant-based. Tom Brady, the Tom Brady, you know, diet is low protein, high complex carbohydrate diets. People are jumping on the bandwagon and realizing you can have 20% meat and fish and protein. Um, but largely we should be getting our proteins more from the plant based category today because that is what is genetically keeping our cells uh, alive. They are maintaining our cell identity, which is kind of what we want. And look, the diet category is certainly a complex uh, diet. But when we talk about diet in terms of maintaining cellular identity, we, we honestly want to keep it in the normal protein, high complex carbohydrate category. You know, the big steak diet 
the big chicken diet, the, the protein, you know, drink uh, supplements, I'm not a big fan of unless you are working out right after you eat them. You know, if you are, you know, not utilizing those proteins, they're just down-regulating the cellular cycles that we want. If you're going to eat them and work out, that's one thing. But if you're just as a normal diet, eating high-protein diets, you're not benefiting yourself. Those proteins are not being used, but they are probably having some detrimental side effects by upregulating your mTOR and preventing cellular uh, recycling of misfolded proteins. Right. I mean, that that seems to make sense to me that there's less necessity for high, quote-unquote, protein if you're not training, but at the same time, like you should be training. So would yeah. that then be offset by, we should be having a little bit more protein and, and maybe just to define this, when you say low or normal protein, how much, how much protein does that, what does that equate to? Yeah. And look, it, it, that becomes questionable. And I think everybody's metabolism is different, whether it's one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight or, or 0.8 or two, you know, I've seen people recommending anywhere from 0.8 to two. Uh, yeah. grams per kilogram. So I think everybody needs to see how their body is reacting and what their own individual needs are. Like I think a football player is going to feel differently. He may accept the fact that his lifespan may be shorter, but he accepts that. You know, when you speak to, you know, football players and you ask them, would you do it again? They, they honestly say, yes, I absolutely would do it again. Yeah. I'm not a football player. You know, I don't need to weigh 350 pounds and I don't need a lot of muscle mass. Uh, but is that football player knowingly accepting the fact that he probably will have a shortened lifespan? Well, look, there aren't enough studies to look at this to really be definitive. But you can certainly watch the news and see such and such a player from the Pittsburgh Steelers died at 67. That's not a normal lifespan today. Right. Um, and that's, that happens, you know, way too often. Right. Um, I think people need to just understand what they're doing. And if they knowingly say, listen, I'm fine with that. I want to be bulkier. I want to be more muscular. Then they'll, they'll go in that direction. But I think they need to be aware. And we understand today that the high protein diet combats cellular identity in a detrimental way. And, uh, you know, I think people have to decide where they want to be on that continuum. So for people who are not professional athletes mm -hmm. or who are not, uh, uh, I mean, bodybuilders are professional athletes mm -hmm. as well, but not like pursuing max muscle mass or max strength where there's going to be mm -hmm. some, some health trade-offs overall, what, what then would your kind of protein recommendation be on like a, you know, per kilo basis. Like you said, you know, the recommendations range widely based on, based on your activity level of a professional athlete is going to need more than a regular person, but someone who is training at a reasonable amount uh, for their health span and lifespan. And we'll talk about that later, what that means, but someone who's training a reasonable bound has a reasonable amount of muscle mass. What would their protein recommendation be? Because 0 0.8 grams per kilo is, is definitely on the low end of Yep. what I've seen recommended. Um, but what, but what do you, what do you think about that? So I, I am on the low end. I, I've gone through periods of my life lately where I am completely plant-based, uh, no supplemental meat, chicken or fish. Um, and it is hard to measure exactly how much protein you're getting when you're purely plant-based. So I usually just go by how I sense my body is reacting. Um, but my feeling is we should be more on the low end because I think when people start asking how many grams, they start supplementing with protein drinks and powders and things like that. And I think it is very difficult to know exactly how many grams of protein you're eating. But I think if you follow some of like these uh, diets that are out there, like the Tom Brady diet, it is almost entirely plant-based. And of the bulk of food that he eats, it's 20% of the fishes and the meats per week. You know, look, I don't think he's lost muscle mass. I think he's maintained himself, you know, very well, obviously. I mean, he's done, you know, better than most people in, in that professional sport. Um, so I, I think, like, I will tell you when I was almost 100% plant-based, I did feel like I lost a little muscle mass. 
but I was somewhat experimenting with my body to see how it responded. So I've kind of gone back to the 80-20 where 20% is meat and I'm not fanatical about it. And uh, I think for me, I do need about 20% of my diet to be fish, meat, and things like that. Um, but I think people have to see how their body responds. Look, if they want, uh, you know, I've seen patients where they want greater muscle mass and they want to supplement with testosterone. You know, maybe for those people, they would be better off having more of a meat-based diet and they'd be able to get the muscle mass that they want. But I think, you know, when it comes to fine-tuning on an individual person's basis, you, you've got to see how your own body metabolism works. Right. And, and so when you say that, you know, understanding how your own body is responding, are you measuring uh, blood markers? Are you measuring these, these DNA pathways? Are you just going based on, I feel good today. I feel like I have high energy. I feel like I'm not, you know, catching colds. I feel like I'm strong. Like, what are you, what are you, how are you actually measuring this? Yeah. So look, I, I exercise every day. I, I hit golf balls every day. I work out in the gym every day. And I, I play a lot of squash. So I get a lot of workout in. And for me, I can tell by how many reps I'm doing, whether I feel as though my muscles are fatiguing. Uh, I used to measure the diameter of my, my arms and legs to get a sense as to whether I was developing any atrophy. I don't do it anymore. But there's no question I feel like I did lose a little muscle mass across my chest and my shoulders. Uh, and I'm seeing now if I can build that back up. But, um, I, you know, I, I'm not fanatical about the measurements anymore. I don't think blood tests will, will give you that answer. The blood test will let you know what your inflammatory markers are like. The blood test will let you know what your, what your glucose pathways are like. Um, but no, I think with regards to diet in terms of strength training, it's going to be, you know, either you're going to measure, you know, the diameter of your muscles or you're going to uh, measure your own strength and endurance abilities. Right. So, so it's a little bit more subjective measurements, which makes, yeah. makes sense to me. It's easy to, to monitor and you can tell like, okay, this shirt, you know, used to fit me a little tight around the arms and now it's like a little loose around the arms. So I've probably lost some, some muscle mass there or, or what have you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's just, just difficult to, to give like widespread recommendations when, yeah. when then it's, there's not like a hard, hardcore measure on it, but then sometimes yeah. a hard measure actually leads to, to more issues because there's so much individual difference yeah. amongst humans. Right. Yeah, and look, when I talk about exercise, I break it down into four categories. Strength training, you know, aerobic conditioning, working on balance, and working on stretching. So, like, I try and hit every one of those categories every day. And um, I think there's a lot of science behind that. I don't think it should be just strength training. I don't think it should be just endurance training. You know, Balance and stretching are equally as important. I think people need to hit each of those categories. And look, we know on a cellular level what those categories do. You know, exercise has been shown to maintain the length of your telomere. Exercise has been shown to help the DNA repair mechanisms in your cell. Exercise has been shown to increase your antioxidant defenses. Exercise has been shown to reduce inflammation and improve your immune function and improve your metabolic, you know, health, your glucose metabolism. So again, like I'm looking at exercise on a cellular level, how it impacts health span and lifespan. And, and this is not new information. Some of this is 20-year-old information. It's just I don't think people really understand what it's doing on a health span, lifespan, cellular identity level, but that is what it's doing. Another category of uh, workouts or fitness training that I would add and something that you already mentioned that you do without defining it was having some element of explosive or power training. And mm -hmm. you get that through playing squash, right? Yeah. You're not, you're, you're moving quickly, you're hitting the ball quickly. And these things really help a lot with, I noticed that it helps a lot with my aging clients because mm -hmm. when we fall and fall prevention and stuff like that, you know, you're moving quickly to catch yourself. And that yeah. would be another, you know, pathway, I guess, neurological or muscular pathway that is acting rather than how can I move this weight slowly, like your typical bench press. It's like, how can I move quickly and, and just be you know sharp and, and general? Yeah. And look, that's where the whole cross training field comes in. You, you do have to kind of hit on all of these areas and people forget about balance. Like if you ever watch Roy McElroy's workout routine, he is standing on one foot on a wobble board, trying to replicate his entire golf swing. 
You know, that ability to have that degree of proprioception is pretty impressive. You know, there's, as an orthopedic surgeon, you know, there's so much literature about why people fall and break their hip. And, you know, after they break their hip, they get into these balance programs to try and work on their proprioception and their balance to help them prevent tripping and falling. So, yeah, I mean, we don't need to wait until we're 70 years old to hit on each of these categories. Strength training, aerobic conditioning, balance, function, and stretching are all things we need to do now, not, not when we're 70. We need to do these throughout our life. Is there a time that is, I don't want to say too late, but I can't think of a better phrase, but too late to start uh, supplementing and paying attention to these things where like, I guess, too much damage has been done that you can't be uh, saved, so to speak? Well, in the, in the signal molecule category, these have been shown to be beneficial at any age started, which is fairly impressive. It's good news. Uh, yeah. Um, I think on an exercise, in the exercise category, at any age, you can benefit. There's no question about that. The same thing occurs with the diet category. At any age, you can benefit. You can see metabolic changes and lab results uh, be corrected. But the problem is if we wait until there are structural changes in our musculoskeletal system or our cardiovascular system, some of those things may not be reversible. You know, if, you're, if your joint turns into sandpaper, there's no way you're going to make that smooth again. If every other brain cell starts to deteriorate and you get cognitive decline, you're probably, you know, you're certainly not going to be able to reverse all of that. So, yeah. Look, the problem today is in America, we kind of have sick care instead of health care. We wait for you to get sick and then we treat you. It was just like that commercial on the Super Bowl with cancer. You know, one out of two people will get cancer and will treat you. Well, I'd rather prevent it. I don't really want it. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we should wait until these ailments develop. But unfortunately, some people wait too long. But at any age, they can benefit from every one of these categories. Right. Again, very logical, right? You'll have diminishing yeah. returns if you start when you're you know, 80 versus start when you're 20. But if you're, if you're 80 and you're just hearing this now, you might as well start. You're still going to yeah. get something out of it. Yeah. One thing I wanted to come back to, to, to just before I forget about the diet thing. Um, you spoke about the presence of glucose in the blood and whatnot. So having a lower protein diet and more plant-based, where do you stand on kind of just carbohydrate intake if, if elevated glucose levels are impacting us negatively, but because we're having too many plants, we may be elevating glucose. Like how does that all kind of work out and how does that, how does that matter? Yeah. So look, ideally we would be in the complex carbohydrate category, not carbohydrate category. So the difference is when you have white bread, like a simple carbohydrate, um, it, it spikes your blood sugar quite high pretty quickly. Most people don't realize that unless they're wearing a glucose monitor. I've had some friends wear a glucose monitor and they were shocked to see how high their blood glucose went just with white bread. The difference with complex carbohydrates or the carbohydrates you get from plant sources is they, because they're complex carbohydrates, they're broken down a lot slower and they don't spike your blood glucose like that. So you're still supplying your body with carbohydrates, which you need. I mean, carbohydrates is the number one energy source in your diet. So you need carbohydrates, just like you need proteins and you need uh, fats, but you need the right uh, percentage of them. So like just to give your listeners an example, like when you eat a bagel, you know, that gets converted to glucose and then it gets converted to glycogen. And if your body is using that glucose right then and there, then it's taken up in your cells very quickly and it doesn't stay to raise your blood sugar levels. But once you get past about 1,600 calories of stored glucose as glycogen, uh, the rest of it's either going to raise your blood sugar level or it's going to be converted into triglycerides, which get deposited in your fat cells. And that stuff you feel around your love handles, that's triglycerides deposited in your adipose cells. So, you know, people need to understand that you got to have the right amount of food uh, to sustain yourself. But once you start eating big, big, you know, four or 5,000 calorie diets, it's just get converted into either raising your blood sugar levels or, or raising your, your fat storage levels. Right. 
correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is also where the importance of fiber comes in because it will blunt the glucose spike and fiber will be more often found with, uh, in conjunction rather with complex carbohydrates versus simple carbohydrates, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's key. And again, you get that kind of fiber largely from plant-based diets. You get that largely from your beans and your nuts and your seeds. Um, and I get it. Some people don't, don't really like that type of food, but you develop a taste for it. Like I eat a lot of fermented food now, a lot of fermented beans, you know, uh, tempeh, uh, non-soy tempeh, which is a lot of, uh, you know, complex carbohydrate, uh, starch type material, um, that has tremendous benefits on your, your gut system, your biome by, you know, preventing certain bacteria from growing and promoting the growth of other bacteria that are considered healthy bacteria. They have tremendous benefit in preventing your spiking of your glucose. So a lot of benefits to the plant based, uh, food categories. And I think people need to feel more comfortable. With that, with the, the the tempeh, the non-soy tempehs, and things like that, I think we'd probably all agree that constantly elevated glucose levels would be bad. But are spikes in glucose bad as well? Assuming that you know we're all healthy and we are, you know that that spike is coming back down pretty quickly. Is that still something that we should largely try and avoid? Yeah. So look, it it is amazing how if you look at the blood work of the most of the people in the, in the country today, a very high percentage of us are pre-diabetic. Mm-hmm. And we're pre-diabetic because of these spikes in glucose that we are subjecting ourselves to. So when you, let's say, drink a, a Coca-Cola or a soda, your blood sugar goes up, then your insulin level goes up to bring the glucose level back down. But as we keep spiking our glucose up with what we eat or drink, we are constantly spiking our insulin level up. And eventually, the cells that make the insulin get worn out. So our, we can't make enough insulin to bring the glucose level down. So the next thing you know, we start drifting up, and we can't drift the glucose level down, and we start living at an elevated blood glucose level. And... I, I, I've seen so many people that are healthy and are in great shape and their blood glucose hemoglobin A1C level is, is, is six. They're basically pre-diabetic. Yeah. So by constantly spiking your blood sugar, you are constantly pushing yourself towards that pre-diabetic level. And that's said, the problem. I've said this before and, and, I, and it sounds like you'll agree with me, but I think that you know type 2 diabetes is almost entirely preventable. And if we were living, you know, quote unquote, a normal, healthy life, like it shouldn't even really exist. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. And look, the problem with this stuff is you can't feel it. Hmm. And people need to understand that even though these processes are slow, they eventually take its toll. Like I was trying to think of a way to explain to the public, how do you measure this type of stuff? You know, it's like, Emptying a swimming pool one gallon of water at a time. You know, day after day, you don't even notice the difference in the water level. But eventually, you will empty the swimming pool. And that's what's happening with, with all of the things that we're doing that we know are incorrect at a cellular level. You can't feel it. You don't see it. By eating that, you know, cowboy steak, is that really problematic? Okay, you know, how much can it hurt me? I don't feel anything. But you are slowly emptying that swimming pool a gallon of water at a time. And you you can't measure it. These are not things that are difficult to measure. And look, we live in this kind of tape measure world right now. We want a yardstick. We want to measure something. Well, you can't measure this stuff because it's too slow a process. But eventually it takes its toll. We know that. If you look at organisms that have short lifespans, you can extend the lifespan by 30% or you can reduce the lifespan by 30%. We just can't measure it and identify it definitively in the human because our lifespan is 85, 90 years old. And it takes, it's going to take a long time for us to be able to document that. And we may never be able to document it because human beings have different environmental choices, different lifestyles, and it's complicated. 
But we know what's applying to unicellular organisms and mice and flies and small mammals is the same thing that's going to apply to us. Right. That's that's one of the the all time difficulties is that we all have such such different environments and so many different things. Like even I, I know that a big part of, of people in the blue zones of, of the world mm-hmm. is even just their interpersonal relationships and, and their their community and family and, and, and to an yeah. extent uh, religion. And that's not something that you can really measure and you can't you know, supplement that or, or, or manufacture that. That's just something that exists. And then the question becomes for me is like, well, is it the relationships or is it the, the, the stuff that comes with the relationships? It's, it's more smiles, better sleep, yeah. more exercise. And it's like, it's the trickle down effects. It's not the relationship yeah. itself. It's, it's all the trickle down effects, but you can't, again, you can't manufacture that. Yeah. And look, look, you hit the nail on the head in that you can't measure it. And people will criticize the, the things that we identify out of the blue zones because we don't know what it is. Is it the relationships? Is it truly the food that they're eating? You know, is it that they live more active lifestyles? These are complicated things to tease out and, and figure out definitively. But it doesn't mean that there's no information there. There's valuable information there. They're doing something right. And we should model our lifestyles after those, those people in those regions. As, as best we can anyway, yeah. because we can't get the same access to the same quality of food that they have, uh, the same, the same air quality that they have living by yeah. the ocean, slow pace of life, you know, these, these kind of things as well. Um, coming back to one thing about exercise, do the different forms of exercise, be it strength training, balance training, aerobic training, et cetera, do they have different implications on, um, the, the cellular pathways and the signal molecules themselves? And that's why we have to, uh, do all of them for the signal molecules, or is it just purely like a physical thing? Yeah, so I think, you know, we've been able to identify that the strength training works on those cellular mechanisms. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody that's shown that the stretching or the balance categories work on us at these cellular molecular levels. But we know through, again, epidemiological studies, we need to work on our coordination and balance. We need to work on our stretching when we get stiff. Um, with regards to the, the, uh, aerobic conditioning or the VO2 uh, max type measurements. I mean, look, that's probably one of the more general ways we can assess health because that's not just observing how you utilize oxygen. That's observing, you know, essentially how much muscle mass you have to utilize the oxygen. So it's it's a very dynamic type measurement. But um, most of the genetic changes that we see or we see through the uh, the strength training, you know, exercise category. I think to someone listening, in case you're worried that this means now that you need to do like four or five different workouts a day with it with a even relatively somewhat intelligently designed training program, you can get all of these things in within your one hour, hour and a half workout. You don't need to do an hour of strength, an hour of cardio, an hour of balance, an hour of stretching, an hour of power. Like that's not how it is. You just, you need to just train properly and, and, and you'll be able to get all these things. Otherwise, you know, what are we going to spend? We're going to live our whole life just so we can live longer, but just to live the whole life, it doesn't really make any sense, right? Yeah. And look, I, I probably spend less than an hour doing this. Right. Um, so yeah, you. I get on the treadmill. I'm good for two miles on the treadmill at varying rates. Um, I'm using weights every day, um, and I and I do my balance and stretching every day. It does. It's not that time consuming. Right. Um, so yeah, everybody can do this. Another just like, cons- just no, like everybody can eat well and everybody can and supplement with signal molecules as well as exactly. Another concept that comes up in regards to. Um, muscle mass and aging is this concept of sarcopenia. I've often said, and I'm not a doctor or researcher of any kind, but it's like, if you stop exercising, you will lose muscle. And so it's kind of like a correlation thing more so like, well, typically when you age, you stop exercising and that's why you lose muscle. You don't lose muscle because you age. Is that accurate to say that there's no real reason that sarcopenia should exist, assuming we continue to exercise and eat right? So look, You've probably heard the word entropy, which means we go from a state of order to disorder. So on a cellular level, your genes go from orderly genes to disorderly genes. So there's a certain amount of entropy that occurs on a cellular level where your cells and your muscle cells, specifically in this discussion, 
lose their identity. So you do lose some muscle mass with time, regardless of how you exercise. And, and so you've probably heard these numbers over age 30, you lose anywhere from three to eight percent of muscle mass per decade. Over age 60, you can lose one to two percent of muscle mass per year. Over age 50, your strength decreases one to two percent per year. So some of that is just that entropic degradation, where just going from order to disorder, the muscle cells lose their identity and you lose some of that muscle mass and strength. But because we know that there is that slow degradation, you know, we want to combat that as best we can, again, with the exercise to maintain the strength that we can and to maintain the, the muscle cellular identity through diet and through through the signal molecule pathway. So again, like I try and understand everything and answer everything based upon how it affects my cellular identity, whether I'm talking about the brain cell or the muscle cell or the cartilage joint cell. Everything in my mind has to be answered with regards to how it affects my cellular identity. That makes sense to me. And it's the most real thing that we can, we can think about impacting, right? It's mm -hmm. like, if it's not impacting my actual cells, like those are the things that are going to die, so to speak, yeah. uh, eventually. It's not just like, oh, me as a, as an, as an entire being dies, like the, the individual parts die and then, and then you go. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I want to give you a chance to, to sort of talk a little bit about what Rebasana is and how how this is going to to change things. I know you touched on some of the some of the supplements and in combining some of those ingredients because they're one hard to come by, two hard to come by in large quantities, and three probably even harder to come by in in legit uh, quality yeah. of them. So so can you talk about like what what you guys have done with that and, and how that's going to be rolled out to people? Sure. So the five molecules that I mentioned before are berberine, resveratrol, quercetin nicotinamide, mononucleotide, and astragalus. And those are the ones that people probably hear about the most. But taking them all at once seems to have real synergistic benefits. And my feeling is people need to take all of them. You can't pick one pathway. You can't pick one cellular pathway. Just like you can't pick one form of exercise or one, you can't be fanatical about one form of, of diet. So we wanted to be able to provide to the public a formula that gave everybody these molecules taken all at once. So we put together a formula of these five molecules that is backed by what's published in the literature. That would be convenient because it's very difficult to order all of these and to, and to take them, you know, five different bottles per day. So we wanted to make it something that was convenient, easy to use based upon all of the publications that are out there and provide something as pure and as high quality as we could. Uh, and that's why we put Rebasana together. It, it provides all of these molecules. It addresses all of the key areas of health span and lifespan in this signal molecule uh, category. Right. And, and in the highest quality, right? Anyone can make... Yeah. Anyone can make a supplement. I could make a supplement tomorrow and start selling it. And it, there's not really much in the way of doing that, but it wouldn't be good because I don't have the, the resources and yeah. the stuff to get the highest quality ingredients. But getting those high quality ingredients and is, is one is expensive and difficult, but it's the only thing that matters. If you're taking you know garbage, then you're just yeah. you're not helping yourself. You're just wasting money. Yeah. I mean, sourcing these molecules is not easy. Testing them all each batch to make sure that there are no impurities is not easy. Making sure the public realizes most of these are fat-soluble and you've got to take them with food or olive oil or yogurt. There's no need to take uh, resveratrol or berberine if you're not eating, taking it with food. You know, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. You've got to take it with some type of olive oil or, or food substance or it's just not being absorbed. So we wanted to put together a website that provided the information and gave people a product uh, and, and gives them the information so they know how to take it so they can maximally benefit from it. Right. No, that, that makes a lot of sense and definitely is, is needed because, again, if you're doing things incorrectly, then it's just not helping you and it's not helping anyone, really. Yeah. What do you think, as, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I know we're in a little bit of a tight for time, but um, 
what do you think are some of the upcoming breakthroughs? And maybe this is more of a prediction, if anything, and if you're comfortable, you know, making that prediction in in the kind of like longevity space, is it, is it supplements that are going to become more widespread and and wide known? Is it some type of new therapy that's maybe like in the works or, or a drug? Like what what is the next big breakthrough that like all of a sudden everyone's going to start taking it and we're going to make moves here? So I look, I think we've, done a good job in the exercise category and in the diet category. I think the breakthroughs will be in the signal molecule category. And there may be other molecules that replace resveratrol. There may be other molecules that replace quercetin. But we need, as physicians, we need a lot of history to know that the dose is right, the efficacy exists, and that there are no side effects. So I don't see a lot right now replacing anything. Like, if you follow this space, you'll see rapamycin has some fantastic qualities to it. But we're not ready to use rapamycin on a widespread scale. Um, what's nice about the molecules in uh, Rebasana is some of these have been used for over a thousand years. Um, some of these have a track record that go back 50 years. So the efficacy and the safety is very well described with very, very, very few side effects. So I don't see a lot of molecules replacing any of these quickly. I think once you know we get through all the lab tests, we still need probably a solid decade of seeing how it affects humans before we can really promote them. What, what I like about what we do with Rebasana is these are all molecules that have been out tried and true for a really long time already. And as long as the dose is right, um, you know the benefits hopefully will be seen by everybody. Right. So maybe, you know, 50, 100 plus years from now, we'll have synthetic versions of these things that are cheaper and easier to produce and easier to yeah. control. But like we're, we're nowhere near that right now. No, no. And like the cutting edge indicates that there are molecules that will replace quercetin and resveratrol. You know, resveratrol has got some pretty fantastic, uh, you know, uh, results. You know, it's a significant sirtuin activator. You know, it, it, it's one of the most powerful sirtuin activators. It's, I think there are some articles that indicate it can increase sirtuin activity up to 13-fold. Um, so, you know, one day we may get a molecule that increases sirtuin activity even more than that. But right now, that's the best we have. Um, so, I, I think one day we will see some dramatic changes with these molecules. But I think it'll take time. And I think that's the difference between what we see in the PhD literature and what we see how physicians will, will jump on this bandwagon. Right. So to, to, to kind of sum that up from, from my end is like, I think it's, to me, it sounds like there's not still going to be a magic pill. We will have, you know, supplements and, and things that are going to certainly help us, but they are only going to be beneficial uh, or maximally beneficial rather in conjunction with exercise, with good diet, with a, you know, a holistic lifestyle and yeah. using those supplements correctly. They're still not going to be like, Hey, get this, you know, do this treatment. And therefore you're just going to all of a sudden live to 150. You've, you've got to do all the things still. Yeah. That, and I think that's the take home message. There's no silver bullet. You, you do kind of want to do it all. Um, if you, if you really want to maximize your health span and lifespan, uh, you want to hit all three of these buckets. Yeah. So apologies to everyone out there. Still got to go to the gym, still got to work out, still got to eat healthy, still got to do all the things. There's more stuff that can help you, but, uh, you know, another episode down and still no, still no magic potion. So too bad. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Dr. Giordano, um, where can people find out more uh, about you and Ribasana? Let us know the contact info. I'll put everything in the show notes, but, but just let me know. Sure. The website is uh, called Rebasana.com. And, um, uh, there'll be on that website uh, a resource section that they can go to where there'll be a lot of print information. There's a extensive bibliography, probably over 150 articles in that section. Um, and then the product itself will be there with a lot of information about the product itself. Wonderful. Rebasana.com. I'll put that in the show notes for everyone to, mm-hmm. to go check out. Um, is there any last message that you want to leave the people with here in, sure. in closing? Yeah, look, I would, I would say uh, as a closing note that the turning point to control biological aging occurred years ago. Um, people need to understand that, believe it, and recognize that 
every day makes a difference. And uh, in every one of us is a younger me. Um, with doing all the right things, they will maximize having a healthy and long life. Wonderful message. Dr. Giordano, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. I think it's going to help a lot of people as well. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Make sure you check out Rebisana.com. Share this episode with a friend and family member who you think it's going to help, which is basically everyone because we're all trying to be healthier <laughs> and live longer. Uh, yes. So share the episode, uh, you know, rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, all the places wherever you listen. Give me a follow on Instagram as well if you're not already at Daniel Yoris and all the other places. And that's that. Go outside. Be a good person. We'll chat soon.